Let me tell you, everybody comes out. You don't just go there to get your meat. It was just a social event. All food things should be a social event. Yes. Right? Yeah, with more hacksaws. <laughs> Is it possible that Canada's most interesting food event happens annually in a home on an unassuming street in Sherwood Park, Alberta? Well, speaking as a guy who's attended the last two Northern Food Night events, I have to say, yeah, it's a distinct possibility. I mean, how many people can say that they've been to a dinner party featuring one-of-a-kind dishes like narwhal mac and cheese, walrus masala, or polar bear donairs? Sherwood Park lawyer and passionate lover of Northern food and culture, Stephen Cooper, who along with his wife, CBC restaurant reviewer Twyla Campbell, created Northern Food Night. And Alexi Bolderiff of Edmonton's Switch Food Truck is one of the chefs who lent his talents to create some of the amazing dishes with these way out of the box ingredients. So pass the Kentucky Fried Blubber and get ready as we take your taste buds way north on this episode of Off Menu. Welcome to Off Menu. Steve, maybe you can explain to the listeners what Northern Food Night is. Well, Northern Food Night was initially a slow food Edmonton event, and uh, we were spitballing ideas, geez, 10 years ago, about uh, ways to focus on local cuisine, and I convinced everybody that local could involve food from the north, things that I was familiar with, and it just sort of morphed from there. Um, it started out as a fundraiser and a celebration of Northern cuisine, the latter is still the case. Uh, it's not a fundraiser anymore because we just simply invite friends and family. And for the last eight years, it's been a function at our house that has involved whatever proteins um, and other things that I can find in the previous year to put in the freezer in anticipation of our Northern Food Night. How do these proteins end up showing up in your freezer? Because who <laughs> oh the hell, my. like who just opens a freezer and goes, oh, look, I got some walrus, I got some polar bear in there. Yeah, we do. Okay. Um, we so probably show Walrus of the Month Club. Walrus of the Month Walrus. Club, yeah. You know what? The food never takes, it, it's not a matter for the most part of going to a store somewhere and picking this stuff up. Uh, in some instances it is. There's a wonderful store in Halloween that uh, provides what's called country food, which is anything off the land. And uh, so that provides one resource to pick up the, the proteins. I get my mukta there, my, my seal fat and seal skin, or uh, sorry, whale fat and whale skin. Um, I get some fish products there. But the big, fancy, exotic-sounding proteins are all a matter of finding people who have it. Mm -hmm. uh, in one instance, um, I needed polar bear meat this year. And uh, there was great interest in the small amount I had last year. And I put the word out on Facebook, and my northern friend said, hey, so-and-so is going out hunting. I said, please save me a chunk. And they did. And then the fun begins because I have a staff member going there, or this person passes it to that person who mails it to another person who brings it in their suitcase. Um, all of the proteins, except for the little bit that I get at stores, are the product of somebody going out hunting, not necessarily just for me, and never just for me, right. and uh, saving us a chunk. It's nice to have good friends, I guess, right? It is. And very yeah. talented friends, as a matter of fact. And your connection to the North is you lived there at one point, right? Most of my life. Uh, we went from uh, Chemical Valley in southern Ontario, Sarnia, um, up to the incredibly clean, crisp Northwest Territories in 1971 when I was eight years old. And uh, from Fort Smith, my father decided that wasn't exciting enough because we had flush toilets and we had long-distance phones and we had one television station and radio station. So we went to Coral Harbor, Nunavut, and uh, it had none of those things. We had no flush toilets, we had no long-distance phones, we had uh, no TV, no radio. And uh, thereafter, very short stint in the South, 
back to Hay River, Northwest Territories, where they had a high school, which was essential for me at that point. And uh, after 24 years, uh, I moved south. Mm -hmm. And Lex, you attended Northern Food Night in 2015 for the first time as a guest. Yeah, that's right. Before you started cooking for us all this year's edition. Having eaten many of those proteins the first year, were you intimidated by those, or did you find the challenge inspiring? No, it was definitely more uh, the inspiration side for me. Um, there were so many great things last year in 2015 that we got to try, particularly the walrus masala, which was just uh, a big standout. Um, but yeah, I mean, most chefs, I think, are, uh, are excited about a challenge like that. Mm. I still have friends when I mention walrus masala, they just, they start giggling instantly. It was like the biggest joke last year. Yeah. <laughs> Bettered but, only, I might say, by the polar bear masala this year by the yeah. same chef. Boy, bettered? I don't even know. That was pretty equal. They were really both awesome. Probably my two favorite things both years. Yeah. What thank proteins you, did you... Josh, no? <laughs> <laughs> Shout name, out, right? Name <laughs> what proteins did you end up cooking with, Lex? I cooked with quite a few. Wow, I worked with polar bear. I worked with walrus. I worked with bowhead whale. I worked with... Uh, Pipsy, muskox, caribou, um, narwhal... So just about everything is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> you had your hands in everything. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was nice. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, some seaweed. Yeah. Yeah. What what kind of challenges did you find with those kind of ingredients? Because I'm sure I mean, the average chef in Edmonton doesn't cook with those kind of things on a daily basis. Yeah, well, uh, the biggest challenge is not really knowing what the, the nomenclature is, knowing what piece of meat you have until you've thawed it and had a chance to look at it. And even then, if you can make sense of which bone or which joint or which muscle it is, then you can sort of guess what a reasonable preparation is for it. Incidentally, that happens at my house quite often, too, because I don't label anything in my freezer. <laughs> I just right. freeze broths. I don't know what we're having for dinner, honey, but well, it's whatever this is. You're well prepped, then, for Northern <laughs> Food Day 2017. <laughs> what was the hardest protein you found to work with? Probably the walrus. The walrus is really, uh, it's tricky. It's, uh, it's really gamey. It's, uh, there's a lot of fat and connective tissue that you have to clean off of it to get it ready to, uh, to cook. And it's got kind of a fishy taste because they eat so much fish that uh, you need to work around that and work with some really big, punchy flavors. If there's one thing that I learned from 2015 from Josh's Curry was that uh, big, bold curry-type flavors work really nicely to, to balance out the big, bold flavors of those proteins. Mm -hmm. And sometimes to hide the flavor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit, sometimes. It's sometimes, yeah, yeah. yeah sometimes that's the case. I mean, we worked with a, uh, I guess I'll call it a protein, but it's basically uh, fermented either whale meat and fat or uh, walrus meat and fat. It's called igunak, and igunak is just basically buried. One of these cuisines or products that is the result of survival. And our northern food night that we had at Charlie's Burgers in Toronto involved igunak, and, and I picked up on, on the smell and, and, and the taste because we at my suggestion, serve the walrus mac and cheese, which was really walrus igunak, in a bowl um, with a clothespin. It was a bit of a joke because this stuff was so smelly. Before <laughs> the chefs worked with it and turned it basically into a bacon chunks, um, incredibly aromatic uh, it's protein a kind slash word, fat. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Lex, what was your favorite dish of the ones you cooked? Like, give us a short rundown of a couple of the ones you liked the best. I really like the polar bear donaire. I As thought did that I. Was, uh, that was fun. It tasted, to me anyways, it tasted just like regular donaire meat, like you'd find on a street corner at 3 a.m. somewhere in Halifax, um, minus the polar bear, of course. So that was, uh, that was a standout. The green curry walrus is actually a, a standout, too. I wasn't sure how that was going to work, 
We had the luxury of using Steve's fantastic pressure cooker. <laughs> fantastic is between asterisks there. <laughs> Air um, quotes. Never seen one like that before, but uh, yeah, it only blew up once, which was good. It didn't kill anyone. Steve got, a, I think, the only ruined one shirt. Walrus doesn't wash out too well, apparently. No. Um, it's a little oily. Yeah. I <laughs> so. Um, but that one was really nice too. But I mean, it's hard to go wrong with green curry, right? It's just yeah. such a nice flavor that uh, it goes with everything. Yeah, and that's I remember Joshna, who's one of the other chefs that were involved this year and last year. I remember that's what she was saying. We were standing on the deck after we ate a couple of those dishes, and she was saying, "You know what? The masala. I make the masala because it's uh, it's such a bold flavor, and it works with almost any protein, even yeah. whether you like the protein or not. Even it yeah. kind of masks it a little bit for the people who don't want it. Yeah." And it's, she makes a great masala anyway. She does. Well, it's a family recipe, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Those, yeah. those sausages were good, too. The, the fermented sausages, I think that was probably my favorite in terms of actually working with the flavor. Because that was a fermented muskox and narwhal sausage. And the muskox has a really gamey, irony sort of taste, kind of like a, like a liver, right? Mm-hmm. And so playing, playing with that flavor and kind of running right down that exact same road and going with a nice tangy sausage to balance that earthiness, I thought was... Uh, it was good. It turned out really, really well. I think that cut of muskox might have had those characteristics, but um, everybody tried the muskox French rack. Mm-hmm. And I don't think... True. It, that, it, that particular cut is so wonderfully marbled, it's almost like it's from a different animal. Yeah. Than the muskox that you used for that yeah, incredible sausage. Yeah. And yet it worked out to be one of my favorite dishes of the night. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was actually quite a... I thought, personally, there was a lot of dishes there that I really quite enjoyed this year. I enjoyed a lot last year, too, but I think there was more this year. Yeah, and, and I think last year it was a bit less well-organized by us as the, as the host and the hostess. This year we hit signs. I mean, <laughs> where the food was, rather than simply running between the chefs and, and uh, the kitchen where everything, or the table where everything was being served and trying to remember what everything was. Yeah. So, so you started Northern Food Night in 2006? I think it was around 2006. We haven't had one every year, but almost every year. And uh, at least one year we had two. Uh, one was the only time we've ever done a formal Northern Food Night outside of our house in Edmonton at uh, the former Bistro La Prasad. Right. Uh, so people were dressed up and there was lots of people. There was, I think, 80 people rather than the 50 people usually limited to. Um, our, everybody who's attended more than that have agreed that that was our least favorite. But what that was was a setup for our uh, Northern Food Night at James Beard House in, in New York City. So we were testing out some things there in a more formal environment to try to get feedback uh, in anticipation of that event, which happened, I think, two months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so from that way it started, it's evolved quite drastically since the beginning, right? Evolved or devolved, I guess. <laughs> you know, it, it evolved. The, the pinnacle, I think, everybody who's attended, almost all of them, um, including Chef Charest mm-hmm. and uh, Twyla and I would agree that the, the, the pinnacle event, um, not surprisingly, was what we had at James Beard House at, at their invitation uh, in New York City. And uh, I mean, I still get shivers when I think of that. It was it was remarkable that we got the proteins down there, first of all. I mean, little stories everywhere about getting this stuff through customs. Uh, without, I mean, we disclosed everything, yeah. still managed to get it through. And then actually attending at that event and, and having one gentleman these are very sophisticated eaters, who said that he had been at 100 of these dinners over the years at James Beard House, and he said this was by far his favorite. Wow. So I don't know how you evolve past that with an event like this, with that sort of accolade yeah. within that sort of context. Yeah. Well, then you just have to evolve, evolve into something a little bit different so you can't directly compare them. 
I suppose. I mean, we, we have um, offered northern food to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, of course. That was a completely separate event in which the northern food was part of, but not the focus of, of the food event. So that was another acme in, the, in the, uh, the path of northern food that we've been involved with. In addition to interesting ingredients, the cachet of northern food night, or at least part of it, is that you bring in some quite uh, renowned chefs. Uh, tell me how you managed to get Louis Charest, the head chef at Rideau Hall, to participate. Well, we, we first met Paul Fink, who uh, at one time had a, a show on uh, Food Network Canada, I think it's called, um, called Fink, which is how he's known to his students. It was a reality show based on, on um, students who were often at risk and for whom he was uh, teaching life and, and uh, job skills. And uh, we met him at a slow food event in Toronto, I think Terroir, actually, um, and then through him, we met a number of other chefs, and we we got a call one day, as I recall it, it uh, rolling out, saying um, Charlie's Burgers, the, the people who ran it were known to, to Paul, asked us if we would do one of these events. And Charlie's Burgers would put on very specific events, bug dinners and things like that, and they were attracted uh, when they heard about Northern Food Night. And Louis said, well, there's a couple of chefs here that might work well. One of them is, I don't remember who the other, the second place uh, chef was, and, and one of them is Louis Charest. And we said, that's great. Uh, we'd love to meet him. And I think probably within a few weeks, we were in Ottawa on other business, and uh, we're, we were invited to uh, the, the kitchen at Rideau Hall and met Louis, and, uh, you know, it was a, a beautiful thing. We've been uh, close friends ever since. And what was it like to be a chef in the kitchen with Louis for the first time? Oh, man, it was, uh, it was great. He's got such a, such a great energy. It's, uh, he's a natural leader, and... You find out right away where you stand with Louis. He's uh, he's very direct. He's not a man of many words, but uh, all of his words are quite poignant. So you know where you stand, and uh, getting to work alongside him and work with him and earn a little bit of his respect was awesome. Oh, you earned a lot of his respect, Lex. <laughs> I assure you of that. Thanks. Steve, how did your passion for northern food develop? Because not everybody's born with this passion for muktuk and walrus and... Weird. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't born that way either. I, I mentioned the, the Ontario roots. So I, I still remember when uh, my father uh, told us that we were moving north that I was the eldest of three children and uh, bursting into tears saying I didn't want to live in an igloo. So I certainly was not born with any predilection towards northern food and it quite scared me as a child. Um, just naturally, uh, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money and uh, we were in an area where we could hunt. And so in Fort Smith, we would, we would hunt. Um, we ate all sorts of country food to supplement our, our diet. And we enjoyed hunting. And I haven't hunted since I've moved south, but I enjoyed it there. And then in Coral Harbor, uh, there were no fresh food. There was no fresh food available. I think I saw uh, apples once when I was there. And I still remember they were 40 cents a piece in the mid-1970s. So I remember our parents buying us one each, and we ate those. So you know, the short answer to your question is, it's what we did to survive. Um, financially, we wouldn't starve to death, but to eat proper proteins, we had to go out and get it. So we would go caribou hunting, we would go ptarmigan hunting, we would go fishing for char. Um, I was never on a hunt for walrus, certainly was never on a hunt for polar bear. Um, those things were just added to the diet because of the communal approach to uh, feeding people in the community. There was only 15 Kablunak or, or, or non-Enoch people in, in Coral Harbor when we were there, and they always made sure we were supplied. We have these wonderful pictures, Phil, of uh, caribou being brought in from Coates Island, which was an island close to the, the community um, that had been populated by caribou. And 
the entire dock, which was just a half-sunken boat actually, um, was full of pieces of caribou. And you just walked up with your hacksaw, hacked off what you wanted, went home. <laughs> Can't really do that these days. No. Same thing as the farmer's market downtown here. Which Can you even imagine? Next week? Yeah. <laughs> like you go to Strathcona Farmer's Market and Irving's have to have a hog there and you just come in and hack off what you want. And it's free. Throw yeah. it on the scale, yeah. And it's free. <laughs> it's a social event, let me tell you. Everybody comes out. You don't just go there to get your meat. It was just a social event. All food things should be a social event. Yes. Right? Yeah, with more hacksaws. <laughs> <laughs> so Alexa, you've attended once and cooked once. What what experience did you like more? Definitely cooking. Yeah, I really enjoyed being there for a few days and getting really involved and seeing seeing how everything comes together. Um, both as a chef and as a, as an onlooker, you know, from within the kitchen, which is a pretty prestigious point, I think. Um, I also thought uh, the event ran so much smoother this year. Not that it wasn't smooth last year, but uh, when you were there as a guest as well, yeah. um, I found that the food was uh, I found the food was tasty, uh, really tasty, and really well organized and really well executed this year. The kitchen was really calm and mellow, and part of that is also that it was much nicer weather, and so everyone was outside and inside this year, I think, and I think that took a lot of pressure off the chefs to have that much more room to, For sure. to work. And you can hang out on the deck a little bit. And, yeah, uh, I, I did yeah. have my prep on the deck, right? Mm-hmm. So cooking that Donair log on the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or smoking the fish. Oh, yeah, the hay smoking the char, yeah. I swear this man has asbestos hands. <laughs> yeah, well, I think any chef does, right? When you, you stop using tools and you just use your hands because there's no time to use tools. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. after a while, yeah, you just... Yeah, you used to half of that is butchery too, right? From grabbing pieces of meat at zero degrees and hanging onto it all day long. Eventually, you can't feel the cold anymore in that hand. The naivety of the new chefs was was, was classically demonstrated by Lex uh, when he asked what cuts we had uh, of <laughs> yeah. muskox and caribou. I don't know. They they were just hacked off, right, with a saw or a chainsaw or an axe. Yeah. Um, but you were able to use these remarkable skills that you have to identify the cuts by the bone structure. I think. Yeah, yeah. The because of because I've spent so much time working in butcher shops and in butchery in general, and we do all our own butchery at Switch, um, the nomenclature comes to me fairly naturally. So I was able to tell, for example, the uh, the caribou that it was a hip cut, it was the H bone. So I knew exactly where it was coming off the animal, and so I was able to make a tasty ham out of it. <laughs> if you say so, they're just they're hunks of meat. Um, you know, when I get them, and uh, I'm always I'm always happy to get them, of course, and feel quite honored that people grace me with these proteins. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what are these people who are giving you their proteins? What do they think when they see on Facebook all these crazy dishes oh, that are coming up with? I love it. That's the best part about Facebook in a situation <laughs> like this. So, you know, I'm getting proteins from right across the north. Uh, the Northwest Territory is less so, almost exclusively from the Northwest Territory, or from Nunavut. And uh, people love what we're doing. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that, that, you know, people think we're a little bit crazy. Um, you know, Inuit are, are quick to tell you we don't like spices, so they might not even like some of the preparations. But... To a man and a woman who've helped me get these proteins, they're honored that we're taking so much interest in their food and that we're taking the time to to think about it, um, to work with it, not try to turn it into something that it's not. Um, you know, working with, with walrus and turning it into a masala is reflecting the fact that it's a very strong tasting protein, um, not trying to get rid of the taste or even mask it, um, but work with it. And uh, I really think that a lot of the credit has to go to Louis Charest, who you know, you described sort of what do you the process of figuring out what to do with these proteins, what are their characteristics. You know, that very first time he worked with this, these proteins in Toronto uh, in, for Charlie's Burgers, um, he was testing out all sorts of things. He was getting really frustrated with seal, 
Um, it, it turned out that we had a seal that was probably uh, harvested in rutting season and probably should not have been eaten because it was not very good tasting. But just watching the wheels turn, and so that, that information that he was able then to pass on to the other chefs is essential. Yeah, well, I think that also, going back to what I, what I like better about this year than last year, I think um, every year his knowledge gets better, Louis' knowledge gets better, and so because he has this encyclopedic mind when it comes to northern food, uh, a chef like me who's coming in for the first time is able to just say, what does this taste like, how does this cook, what's the best way to do this, what's the best way to do that? And so I don't have to do any of that guesswork myself. He's done it all, and he has all the answers. And from there, it's just a question of adding a little bit of my own creative flair and some of my own flavors. Well, there was a, uh, a chef's chat line that we set up on Messenger uh, with just the chefs and myself and Twyla there. And some of the conversations, I mean, they're just classic. Um, the chef's talking about which mukta would be better to go with the, with the muskox in your, your sausage, narwhal or beluga or, or bowhead. Um, I think you went with bowhead in the end. No, it was the, it was the narwhal. For the was sausage, it? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, those conversations are just classic. And, you know, you have Louis there who, who just sort of kicks in a suggestion here or there. He'll, he'll correct the chefs when, they, when they've, you know, misstated what they think the characteristics might be based on tasting. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, both of the chefs that helped out uh, Louis and Paul this year were guests last year and ate the food. So you had some knowledge of it, but not as a, a bare protein. No. And so that's where Louis was able to come in and clarify Yes, yeah, nice to have that resource, right? Yeah. We've been there almost every year, and uh, every year he's going to get a little better handle on it. And one of the best things about having Louis involved, and there's lots of them, um, is that Northern Proteins are now regularly offered at Rideau Hall to visiting dignitaries. Um, he's had, uh, you know, uh, never frozen char, as I recall, offered to um, a dignitary, a senior dignitary. I don't want to say the Empress, but somebody connected with the, the Japanese government. Um, you know, these are exciting things that I don't think would have happened, but for Edmonton's investiture in or investment in, in these proteins, and that uh, although Edmonton is certainly not the north, it's a gateway to the north, and we were able to introduce these proteins to a man who has a lot of influence on uh, the culinary habits of, of uh, senior members of governments around the world. So. Was Northern Food Night Louis' first exposure to cooking a lot of these proteins too, or had he was he kind of a, a veteran of some of them? No, his Northern Food Night uh, connections were really not Northern Food Night, Charlie's Burgers. So we had taken a concept that we had developed in Edmonton, introduced it to Toronto through Charlie's Burgers. That's when we met Louis, and that's when he spent hours trying things and spitting them out, um, trying to learn about these proteins. And that was the that was the base of his knowledge that he's not developed over the, the previous five or six years. Well, now he's the authority. When can we expect a polar bear donair on the menu at Switch Food Truck? Oh, I think it's a supply chain issue. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be really expensive. Right? <laughs> All right, I want to try something here. We're going to do something I'm calling Make Your Case. So I'm just going to throw out a question, and we'll all make a case for your answer. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for me and Lex, considering Steve's a lawyer and argues for a living. <laughs> I don't but argue, I debate. I argue. <laughs> I just cook. <laughs> Very well. Okay, if you could eat only one regional cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, I struggled with this one. So what I've decided to do, that before all of the other regional cuisines were destroyed in this horrible future world, I was going to merge two, and I was going to call it... Um, either uh, Italianese or, or Jap Italian. Now, I have a reason for that, okay? So hear me out. Um, it's, it's not a natural combination. I, I, I respect that. 
But what it does is it, it merges the science of Japanese cooking, where they make the best of everything. Noodle soup, pho is great, but ramen is better. <laughs> you know, um, North American beef is fantastic. Compare that to a Kobe or more generally Wagyu beef. They have the science down, but it's the Italians that have the art. So everything's rustic. They, they use the best ingredients, but they don't care so much what it looks like. I mean, a bowl of spaghetti sauce is not that pretty. You know, a bowl of ramen has all the components carefully placed, so it's a work of art. You don't know whether to just stare at it or eat it. And so I think the combination of those two, call it what you want, is the, is the cuisine that I could live with for the rest of my life. Wow, you really thought about that. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. It's funny that you went that route because uh, I was going to say Japanese. I, uh, there's, there's so many wonderful things to say about Japanese cuisine. They're such incredible artisans, and they pay so much attention to the balance in food, balancing flavors, balancing textures, balancing temperatures. Uh, everything that they do has such incredible precision, and I guess that's a, a good reflection of their way of life as well um, and their attention to detail. Uh, but everything about Japanese food, and they do use the, the very finest ingredients, which is something that you see a lot in Italian food. Um, there is quite a bit more artistry, like you said, in Japanese over, uh, over Italian, even when it comes to setting up plates and setting up even non-edible garnishes that they put onto plates and the choice of plateware and everything else. There's so much thought that goes into that. Um, yeah, I think my case was going to be Italian too, unfortunately. I wanted to go somewhere outside of the norm, but... Uh, you know what, when I think of the things that I just couldn't live without, oh, hard, salty cheeses, yeah. Lots of bacon in Italian cooking, too. Yeah. Lots and of meat. pasta. I love the Lots bolognese. of meat. Yeah. And then when you don't feel like the heavy meat stuff, amazing tomatoes. Uh, I can just eat a plate of really good, delicious, fresh tomatoes, a little bit of salt. I'm happy. Yeah, and that's, that's quite the similarity, right, between Italian and Japanese cuisine is good ingredients prepared well and not fussed with too much just so they can showcase their best characteristics. But I'm not sure that that rustic Japanese is all that common, as opposed to rustic Italian, which tends to be the way to do it. I mean, I use a pasta cutting machine yeah. uh, on my KitchenAid, but it's just as quick as Twilight usually does with a knife, and you're you know, rusticating your meal, basically. You yeah. wouldn't do that so quickly with Japanese. Uh, rustic is an interesting word for chefs. Uh, when I was in culinary school, we had an instructor that said that rustic was just a word that people used for something that was sloppy and lazy. <laughs> Um, so the, the word in rustic, other words, describing how I right? cook. Yeah. <laughs> the word the word rustic has become bastardized a little bit lately for people using it for something that they haven't necessarily put care into. I think there is some really beautiful rustic food in that it's simple and that it's rough around the edges and that the focus it's, it doesn't represent a lack of focus. It just represents a focus on a few key things and rather than you know no one's tweezing on flowers and powders and little dots of gel when it comes to Italian cuisine. As long as they aren't deconstructing, I don't care what they call it. I mean, rustic to me is a term of art, um, and it denotes exactly what you're saying, Lex, which is, you know, the, the, the rough cut pasta. Yeah. Um, you know, those sorts of things where, you know, the, the, the meatballs, we don't care if they're placed symmetrically yeah. or asymmetrically. Yeah. If, now, yeah. if it's Japanese meal, then oh, yeah. damn right that those, those meatballs are going to be exactly yeah. where they should be. That's why I say, although there's art and science in any cuisine, I, I see Japanese food as more science than art, and, and Italian is as the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, when I watch in Japan, it, 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 in a department store basement in Tokyo, a man making a burger, and there is such, it's an art, but his science is there, and every burger looks exactly the same. Yeah. Even though it's made by hand, there's no machine involved. That, to me, is the, the, it's just the essence it's of Japanese. Precision. Cooking. Precision, and when I think of precision, 
I think of science. And that lack of precision, I think of as art. So that when you're baking, right, that's more science because everything's got to be measured. I mean, you can go by eye, but who measures when you're making an Italian sauce? So I think you guys nailed it actually perfectly. Uh, so we'll move on to the popcorn round. Some quick questions. This will be really easy unless you don't know the answer. Are you ready to go? Sure. Outside of Northern Food Night, what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Lamb testicle. Oh, yeah, I've eaten various animals' testicles. I have some in my freezer. Um, but probably, this is supposed to be a quick answer, isn't it? Uh, probably uh, uh, lion. Lion? Lion. Yeah, I wish I could remember more. We ate zebra as well when we were in the Canary Islands. Oh. <laughs> My next question for you should be, uh, what animal have you not eaten? What haven't I eaten? I don't know. Lots. Penguin? I haven't eaten penguin. Wrong pole. <laughs> I would. If you could add one talent to your repertoire, what would it be? Oh, goodness. I wish I was able to do like my wife and so many talented chefs like the two of you, uh, and that's cook without a recipe. Honestly, I just wish I could. Uh, I wish I could go longer without sleep so I could work more. As tacky as that sounds, I uh, I love my work because we're always learning, we're always creating and inventing and finding out what works and what doesn't, and forging ahead with things that people said would never work, and then all of a sudden they do. And so it'd be nice to just be able to do that more. Least favorite kind of spam: canned or email? Email. I'd have to say canned. It's easier to control. Uh, team summer or team winter? Well, for me, team winter. I'd say Team Summer for Edmonton especially. It's festival season. There's a lot of beautiful, wonderful things going on in Edmonton in the summertime. Um, what is your bucket list travel destination? Japan. I haven't been yet. Mine's going to sound weird. I'm a genealogist. I'm waiting to go to Belarus where my grandfather uh, was born. Uh, what is your guilty food pleasure? Oh, easy. Budapest Deli deep-fried bacon. In fact, Louis Charest calls it culinary crack, and he is correct. Deep-fried bacon. Right. Don't eat it. It'll kill you, but you'll die happy. <laughs> it's all you can ask for in life, really. Yes. I'd say foie gras. It's just, you know, it's something you don't want to have every day. It's rich. It's decadent. It's, uh, it's incredible. And because you don't have it every day, you can really just kind of savor it and soak it in. Nobody is better at blank than me. Sorry, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of all the answers that my family would be putting in there. They wouldn't agree on one, but... but <laughs> Go ahead, Lex. Oh, I don't know. If, if I'm going down the same route of what people would say about me, I would say pretentious wordiness when it comes to food. <laughs> um, inappropriate condescension. Nailed it. Favorite curse word? Fuck. I'd say probably fuck. It fits in, it fits in the middle of words. Right? Yeah. You, can't, you can't use words like shit. I won't use a lot of misogynist terms. They just aren't in my vocabulary. Um, but things like the word shit doesn't fit in the middle of a word. But you can say, you know, that's just ridiculous. Or I can't even think of an example now all of a sudden. But you can put fan fucking tastic. Fan fucking tastic. Yeah. Well done, Phil. Yeah, well, random obscenities is actually my special superpower. <laughs> uh, do you have a phobia? Yes. Is it spam? No? No? Okay, good. Um, not really. I don't think I have a specific phobia. You're not, you're not going to say what yours is, Steve? Oh, well, you didn't ask me. You just asked <laughs> you me if I had one. one. Touche. So, are you asking me? Then, then I would say... Uh, yes. Uh, claustrophobia, <laughs> the, whatever the height phobia is. 
uh, one of my nightmares was um, being at the ASEAN Tower with my then three-year-old son, and uh, he walked over that glass floor, and I had to just beg him to come back because I wouldn't, I couldn't force myself to get on the glass to haul him back. I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid of spiders, but if I see one, I want it out. Yeah. Because if I know that as soon as I lower my guard, it's going to lay babies in my face. All right, last one. If you overheard someone talking about you, what would you hope to hear them say? Hmm. I would hope to hear them say that I made the best meal they had had. Um, I, probably for me, given what I do, that he cares. It's important to me that people realize that I care about the people that I'm working for. Well, I, uh, not even work-related even. I don't know yet work at all, but I can tell you just from Northern Food Nights, uh, <laughs> the fact that you care is pretty damn obvious. Northern Food Night truly is a once-in-a-lifetime experience that just happens to take place every year. It's an evening filled with passionate people, inspiring food, and a healthy sprinkling of wine. And I'm honoured to have attended twice. Thanks again to Stephen Cooper and Alexi Boulderiff for joining me to talk about the event on today's show. Music for Off Menu provided by Mrs. Glass. Until next time, remember, life's too short to eat shitty food.